You know, one of the one of the most wonderful things I think about being a Christian is the possibility, or perhaps that's not strong enough a word. It's the probability, or even the certainty, of transformation. John was just telling us about a conversion experience, quite a dramatic one, by the sounds of it, um, and. Actually, one of the marks of evangelicalism is the conviction that Christians have a conversion experience, that there is a sort of before and an after, and that the Holy Spirit engages with us in such a way that we are truly changed. And we do. We undergo change as we engage with Jesus, don't we? And all of you probably can think of a time in your life where you were a different person to who you are now. Um, for me, it was quite dramatic. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid, um, and in many ways, you know, I've been in the church all my life. And yet, there came a time uh, when I was radically changed by the gospel because I suddenly understood that it was for me. I'd heard this thing all my life, but I remember being on a camp as a sixteen-year-old and realizing that Jesus' death on the cross had a personal impact on my life. And I was crying, and I just, it, the whole thing struck me with, with a, a newness. And I remember after that camp, I was different. The way I talked about my faith at school, um, and the attitude that I had towards God, and, and actually my understanding of myself had changed dramatically somehow in that conversion experience. I'm not a huge fan, though, of talking about a single conversion experience as Christians. You know, I was converted at this age, and End of story. Because I, I think being a Christian really, or discipleship, is about a lifelong commitment to a whole long series of conversion experiences. And in many ways, that's what gives us hope as Christians. Um, the past, whatever your past is, is not merely repeated in the present and then on and on and on into the future. Thank God. The old self, to use Paul's language here, or the old man, is not the same as the new man or the new self. And there's a definite change there. And Lee touched on this last week uh, with the illustration that the single Lee died when on his wedding day and that the new married Lee came to life. And that's one way to look at it. You can't then go back and say, no, I want to be the single Lee again. Well, he can't. And I think I've shared a similar illustration with some of you um, in, in some of my classes about my brother. When I was at, at Bible college back in my 20s, uh, I used to live at the Bible college, but I would come home on the weekends and I'd share a room with my younger brother, Pete. And we would, you know, we spend half an hour, an hour talking before we went to sleep each night because we were in a shared room. And he would ask me all kinds of questions, many of which do not bear repeating in this context. But he would ask me what I was learning about, and um, I, I remember him asking, maybe because he was about 16 and I was about 20, a number of times, how do you avoid sin? You know, when there's, a, when there's a pattern of sin in your life, how do you stop it or prevent it? And I'd been listening to, to N.T. Wright's course, Romans in a Week, which is an excellent course. I recommend that you get hold of it somehow. And I'd just been learning that in that moment of decision, in that moment of temptation, um, we need to remind ourselves, this is not who I am anymore. This is not who I am. And we talked about that 
a bit and, and, and Pete would say, well, isn't this just a mind game though? You know, you're telling yourself it's not who you are so that you can convince yourself that you should behave differently. But it's not a mind game. It's the gospel. It's the truth, capital T, the good news of the gospel that you are encouraging yourself to take hold of and believe. To borrow another phrase from Lee last week, this is where the rubber hits the road. And I would say to Pete, look, the trust, you know, trusting in the gospel, trusting that you're actually a new person, it's not something that you do up here. Yeah, I believe that that's something somehow has changed. It's something that you do. You behave like that new person because you genuinely believe that you are that new person. And that's what trust in what Jesus has done for us means. That's what it looks like. Because rather than thinking, hmm, what do I do in this situation? Okay, I'm faced with some sort of temptation. What do I do? Do I choose A or do I choose B? And then you go through a little, hmm, I need to work out which one of these is right. And then I, I, I choose that or I, I exert all my mental and physical energy into doing that thing. That's not really the way that the, the Bible speaks about making these kinds of decisions. It's very much more based in who you are, identity. The question that you should be asking in those moments is, who am I? Who am I? Now that's a big question for Tuesday morning, isn't it? Huge question. But identity determines activity. Identity determines activity. We like to think of it as the other way around sometimes. If I just behave this way enough, I'll eventually become that person. But the, and, and that can be true to some extent, but the gospel turns that around. It's counterintuitive. It says, no, you are a new creation. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone and the new has come. New creation. And Paul talks like this in, in a number of his letters, doesn't he? In Philippians 3, uh, he's contrasting Christians with those who he describes as, strong language, enemies of the cross. And he says of them, he says this, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship, our real home, the place that, dictates to us who we are, is in heaven. And again there, his point is, who are you? Who are you now? Because your new self, your identity, will then inform your decisions, your actions, your words, your priorities. And so Paul's making that contrast here in this passage. Um, we haven't read it right through though yet, have we? Let's read it right through. So Ephesians 4 17 to the end of the chapter. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to, every, to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you've heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbours, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labour and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Sometimes the way Paul talks sounds so black and white, doesn't it? Like it's all very simple and very clear. And sometimes a little harsh. We may be prompted to ask whether Paul's language is a little bit harsh. Why, why does he state here that the Gentiles have futile minds? Is he saying that they're empty-headed? Um, it, it's the same phrase, actually, that's used in Romans 1. Um, in Romans 1 verse 21, Paul talks about humans becoming futile, meaning fruitless or vain in their thinking, when they don't or won't acknowledge God in their thinking. Right? So it's not far from the psalmist's words, actually, in the Old Testament. In Psalm 14.1, uh, fools say in their hearts, there is no God. The fool says there is no God. And then the psalmist goes straight on to say they're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So there's this direct link. Do you see the logic of that link? Between a mind that disregards God's presence, a lack of God consciousness, we might say, leading straight to lawless behavior that also disregards God's presence. And so Paul reminds us here that God is central to our new lives in him. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul's saying, right, that's what's happened. That's, that's the reality. So... In verse 25, verse 25 begins with this little Greek word, dia, therefore, and I think I've said this before, my grandpa always used to say, if you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for, right? So you look back in the previous section, we'll tell you what it's there for. And here he's saying, now this is, this is how you should behave given that reality. And it's interesting what he says, because Paul says, be angry but don't sin in your anger. There's nothing wrong with anger. Sometimes we feel anger about all the right things, right? Like that possum really annoyed me this morning. Uh, yesterday. My story's falling apart already. <laughs> but don't sin in your anger. That's the issue. And I, I find that a challenge. If someone gets me worked up the wrong way, you know, I can feel very emotional about it, but it's it's... What do I do about it? How am I responding in my words? 
If you used to steal, Paul says, do something good with your hands. With your words, don't tear people down, build them up. Don't be bitter, angry, malicious, the things you used to do, but be kind, tender, forgiving. And it's fascinating the way that Paul puts this, because in verse 20, I mean, I don't know if it grabbed you, but there's a phrase there that really grabbed me. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say that's not what you learned about Christ, which is kind of what I expected. But it's kind of like how uh, Jews talk about studying or learning Torah, right? Torah means instruction. Jews don't learn about the Torah. It's not sort of a, a, a distant way off thing that they're just studying and learning about. They learn Torah. That's the language that they use. Do you see the difference? And I think with Christians, it's the same, it's the same uh, thing. G Jews aren't learning about those instructions. They do Torah. They learn Torah. And one of the things, especially in our Old Testament class, that strikes many people is, why so many rules? <laughs> why, why do you have rules about eating and uh, clothing, even about fighting? You know, the right things to do and not do when you're fighting. And if we're honest, we, we sit back and we think, it's overkill. Right? It's too many laws about too many things. What's the, what's, what's the point? But as we've discussed in that class, one of the great things about having so many laws about so many parts of life is that they bring a God consciousness to everything. So if you guys are anything like me, yeah, we had lunch straight after this. My stomach's already telling me that that's way overdue. And I'm thinking, if I can just get through two of those beef ones, before most people have even got there. I can then get into an egg one and a couple of those little rolls with the hoisin. Is that how you guys think about lunch? Yeah. yeah. Glad to hear it. So we, we eat and we just think, I'm hungry. I can't wait to eat. I'm going to get stuck into this. Now, for a Jew who has a bunch of food laws around their eating, there's a God consciousness about it all. You can't just get stuck in. You've got to think about this, that, and the other. And immediately, God is on your mind. You're putting your clothes on in the morning. You can't wear certain fabrics, you know, something that's made out of two different kinds of fabric. You can't put your polycotton t-shirt on. Suddenly, you're conscious of God and of the law. You're fighting with someone, and that's a good time to be God conscious. And you're suddenly thinking, what are the things that I can and can't do or say here? Now, in the same ways that Jews learn Torah, Christians are called to learn Christ. We don't just learn about him. I hope you're not just attending classes and thinking, ah, interesting guy, that. You are learning Christ, as in you are learning to embody the life of Christ, to think like Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, quite profoundly, that we have the mind of Christ. And as Christians, we are learning to be the body of Christ. So here in this section, this second section, Paul, I think Paul says some really profound things, but really practical things about habits. Now you may be interested to know, as I was or am, that scientists say that the reason we develop habits, habits emerge and then sort of become consolidated in our lives, because the brain is always looking for a path of least resistance. It's looking for a way to save effort, right? So if you've done something before, and then you're doing it again, your brain would all automatically think, this is familiar. If you then do it again, 
your brain will think, I think I can just lock into a sequence of actions and thoughts and whatever here. And we develop these habits because our brain is on the lookout for routines. Now, I, I didn't see all of you walk in here today, but how many of you were thinking left foot, right foot, left foot, right, I'm going to make it, I'm going for this one, left foot, right foot, <laughs> left turn. Yeah, we're not thinking about that because our brain has made the walking process very automated so that we can think about other things that are more interesting, that are more exciting, like who's that sitting in my chair? And how do I get rid of them so that I can sit there because I'm a creature of habit? But the walking just happens, um, and it's a simple example, but our brains are always looking for a path of least resistance, and that's how we shape habits. And in one sense, this is in a very practical level, uh, how our, our humanity and our theology sort of clash. They come together at this point. Because if you know that you're a new creation, but you keep choosing to tell half-truths when it suits you, then here's what will happen. It will get easier. It will get easier and easier to tell half-truths in those contexts because your brain will say, I know how to get out of this one. I've done this before. This is the way I, I operate. And we all know that, right? I'm not trying to make any of you feel bad or guilty. Like, we all have areas of life where we start to do the wrong thing and it just becomes a little bit easier. And I think actually this is where the biblical language of hardening comes from. And Paul uses that phrase, that, that, that word. Uh, in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. And this is true. We alienate ourselves from God bit by bit when we resist what he's saying to us. So if you choose something once, it's easy to choose it the second time. And now what are supposed to be tender and sensitive hearts sort of develop a, a crust almost, a tough exterior. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you identify with that? And it becomes harder for us to hear the Spirit of God. And so in verse 19 he says, They've lost all sensitivity. We lose that sensitivity. Pharaoh comes to mind, maybe because I've been teaching the Old Testament in the last couple of weeks when we we're talking about Pharaoh, when we talk about hardened hearts. But the point with Pharaoh is that as those signs and plagues intensify, and you would think that he would wake up to himself, his heart becomes harder, and he remains resistant to God. But uh, although we would like to think of Pharaoh because he's a baddie, you know, Pharaoh, yeah, hard heart. Actually, Israel is described right through the Old Testament as having a hard heart in the Psalms and in the prophets. And really the core idea behind that is that Israel failed to understand who they were. They, they lost, they had a genuine identity crisis, lost a sense of their identity. We want to be like all the nations around us they said, to Samuel. And really I think that's Paul's concern here. In the second part of our passage, as he's talking to this, these Ephesians, he doesn't want sin to get any easier for them. He doesn't want it to become a habit. And so he says to them, he gives them specifics, be truthful with each other. It's powerful language. You are members of one another. 
We are the body of Christ. That's, a, that's an image Paul likes. Lies divide us, don't they? Falsehood divides. But that can't be. That can't be the reality because the reality, according to the gospel, is that we are members of one body. And in the next chapter, Paul will say that we're members of Christ's body. And next in verse 26, he says, Be angry, but don't act on your anger. And certainly don't hold on to it until the sun goes down. Because when you hold on to anger, what happens? It grows, it festers, it becomes resentment. Or as Paul puts it, puts it, it makes room for the devil. Verse 27 suddenly sounds a bit random, like he's addressing thieves. But the, the principle here is that thieves should stop stealing because that's what they do with their hands. And he says, with those same hands, put them to good use. And actually, that's a really useful principle if you struggle with anything, whether it's in your mind or with your hands, with your feet somehow. Use those, use your minds and your hands and your feet for something else, right? Just apply and, and develop a new habit. The important principle here with all of this is just with breaking old habits and making new habits, is that you are consciously replacing one action with another. You're teaching your hands, your mind, your words to do something constructive. Now, why is all this important? Big picture. I'll just finish with this. Because as verse 30 says, you've been marked for redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. And so we're back to this question of identity again. You've had a stamp placed on you, sealed or marked with the holy character of God. And when we hurt each other, we grieve God the Spirit, who has united us and given us gifts. So really, at the end of the day, Paul's saying, don't do it. Be kind and show grace. Why? Be who you are. Be who you really are. And on that note, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we have been stamped with your Holy Spirit, with the holy character of God. I praise you that each person here has been given a gift or gifts to serve each other, build each other up. And I thank you for this community. It means so much to me and to, to all of us here as we do build each other up and encourage each other to live the lives that you've called us to. We pray this morning or this afternoon, as we go into the afternoon, that you'll continue to speak to us, that your spirit would give us that gift of conviction, showing us ways and um, parts of our lives that could be different as you put your finger on different things. Help us to receive that with gratitude and to seek to do um, as you would do, to live Christ-like, godly lives in this community. Amen.